Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Um, a very warm welcome to the LSE uh, for tonight's debate. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome you on behalf of Polis and also our partners tonight, uh, which is the Media Society. My name's Charlie Beckett. Uh, I'm a journalist and I'm director of Polis, which is the media think tank here at the LSE, and we're also partners with the London College of Communication. Two years ago, uh, Dr. Damien Tambini from the LSE and I decided it would be a jolly good idea to carry out some research on financial journalism. We thought that the new media technologies, um, the new media con uh, market conditions, uh, and the globalised trends meant this was going to be a fascinating area to, to, to investigate. Little did we realise what was around the corner. Uh, when we published the first uh, stage of our uh, research, a report published this autumn, which uh, there are copies outside, we found ourselves in the middle of the biggest economic story for 80 years. And of course it matters because as citizens how we understand what on earth is happening uh, to our global economy depends so much on what we uh, are told by the news media. So this story uh, is the ultimate test, if you like, of the power and the ability of journalism. Now, at Polis, we're going to be continuing this research, and we're looking for uh, people who want to get involved in that research with us, but it's also very important that this is a set of issues that's discussed publicly, and that's what we're here for tonight. And for tonight, I am thrilled that we have a stellar lineup of journalists, economists, and politicians. And I'm now going to hand over to somebody who has dabbled in all three of those areas, who's going to chair tonight's debate, and that's Howard Davis. Thanks very much, Howard. Well, thank you, Charlie. Well, welcome to the LSE, and particularly welcome to the uh, panel who joined us. And this, unusually for the school, is a debate by royal command, because the question in the title of, today, of tonight's uh, event, why did nobody see it coming, uh, was the question put by Her Majesty the Queen when she opened our new building and was uh, <laughs> we planned various uh, events which we hoped would interest the royal couple and one of them was a very short presentation about the financial crisis, in fact by uh, Professor uh, Luis Garicano here, who just showed three slides that were nicely put on the wall, and the Queen uh, looked at them and said, uh, memorably, that's awful. Um, which, you know, as a two-word summary, um, <laughs> is tough to beat. Um, and then followed it up with the question, um, why did nobody see it coming? And that's the question which we are trying to answer tonight. The, of course, various groups have been identified as people who should have performed better, and nothing that we say tonight about the media should in any way imply that there aren't important issues to be addressed by politicians, by central bankers, by regulators, uh, by the banks themselves, of course. But the question of the media role is, I think, an interesting one. And the Treasury Select Committee, indeed, had a run at it uh, three weeks ago, I think on the 4th of February, where they summoned a group of journalists. Uh, but that became 
the Robert Peston show, really, um, in that they focused rather exclusively on uh, Northern Rock and the particular circumstances around the reporting of that. And I hope that tonight will be a rather broader discussion. Now, of course, some uh, don't accept the premise that uh, the media didn't identify this and various witnesses at the committee pointed to warnings in some articles and that's fair enough but Lionel Barber of the FT acknowledged that it was hard to say that impending crisis was the dominant theme of their reporting in 2006-2007 and I think Martin Wolfe on the FT has said something silly similar <laughs> and silly <laughs> Uh, but this point uh, is not just an issue in the UK. Uh, there was an article in the Columbia Journalism Review just recently by two award-winning financial journalists, in fact, who noted that a lot of their colleagues were now putting themselves forward for Pulitzer Prizes for their post-mortems on Bear Stearns, on Lehman Brothers, etc., and asked where were the same news organizations while the biggest financial story of their lifetimes was being played out nationwide. The answer, they say, generally out in left field. I've never quite understood why left field is such a bad place to be since I was a left back throughout my footballing career, but in America that's regarded as a bad place to be. And they go on to say that credit standards deteriorated to disastrous levels, at least in part because of a decline in journalistic standards over the same period. They ask why, and they suggest diminished resources for news organizations, risk aversion, lack of editorial vision, lack of technical expertise and historical perspective, and what they describe as impaired objectivity, and they quote particularly the adulatory reporting which Alan Greenspan attracted for much of his career. There was similar speculation in some of the evidence submitted to the Treasury Select Committee by journalists here. Uh, both Alan Rusbridge of The Guardian and Robert Peston himself have pointed to the issue of complexity, the difficulty of explaining what was going on in markets, and also an excessive preoccupation and focus in the news media on the equity markets um, rather than the debt markets, which actually continued in the early stages of the crisis. The rise of financial PR is sometimes attributed uh, as part of the story, and also um, Simon Jenkins argued that journalists have become too close to the city and too credulous, etc. Well, the team here this evening is going to try to guide us through these and other issues, and we have uh, from the left uh, Vince Cable, the Liberal Democrat Treasury spokesman. We have Evan Davis from the Robert Peston Show, from the Today programme. Um, we have uh, Alex Brummer uh, from the Mail, though he used to be uh, on the Guardian serious paper. Um, <laughs> Gillian, Gillian Tett, Miss... Ms. Crisis herself uh, on the Financial Times and Willem Bauter, uh, who in addition to um, being a professor here in his spare time uh, And used to be at a real university Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes used to be at a real university has a, uh, a blog on the FT called Mavericon so uh, is also himself partly to blame um, <laughs> We're going to begin with Vince Cable Well thank you um, Well, the focus of the discussion will be around the media and its role. I should start off by saying that I'm, I'm not a media person, I'm not a journalist, 
though those of you who do read the left-wing press uh, will have noticed that I now have a regular column in the Mail on Sunday. Um, I, I'm always very conscious of the uh, advice to politicians from the late Enoch Powell, who wasn't an ideological soulmate of mine, but nonetheless suggested to politicians that for politicians to complain about the media uh, was as foolish as for fishermen to complain about the sea. Uh, we swim in the same environment, uh, and it, I, I don't intend this evening to launch on some great criticism of the way the media have dealt with this. I, I want to latch on to the title itself, which is, Why Did Nobody See It Coming? Uh, I mean, this is an invitation to a certain extent to a certain amount of nostalgia, um, and it gets us away from the much more difficult issue of trying to say what should happen next. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say, I, I speak for myself, but I'm sometimes given credit for having anticipated some of this, but I think the honest view is that I, nor many of the other people who were involved in this debate, ever really understood the sheer magnitude and scale and speed with which this disaster has unfolded, the way that the whole international financial system has collapsed like a pack of cards. was certainly for me beyond comprehension and certainly something I don't claim in any way to have anticipated. Uh, the fact that I got a few things right, I often liken to the old story that uh, you know, in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Most people were blind, saw very little that was happening. But I thought it would be useful to dwell a little bit on the small bits of the jigsaw that I was involved in and to try and draw some lessons from those and some insights from them. I think the first occasion that I became involved in controversies which ultimately led to this disaster were about 10 years ago when uh, the process started of demutualizing the building societies. Uh, it was a liberalizing legislation introduced by the Conservative government and some of us opposed it and campaigned against it and were rightly regarded as complete nutters uh, for opposing this wonderful idea that everybody could have a free lunch, a windfall, something for nothing. Uh, I have to say, in hindsight, that although we got that right, uh, we got it right for the wrong reasons. Um, what concerned us was the fact that if you had shareholders, you'd get a smaller spread uh, for the depositors and the borrowers. Uh, it never occurred to any of us, I think, that the conversion of the building societies to banks would be deeply destabilizing with what it ultimately became. And I think one of the whole lessons of that exercise, which goes way back into the 1980s, that the process of liberalizing the financial sector had all kind of severe uh, financial and economic consequences which were not envisaged at the time. And before we embark on similar experiments, we should bear that in mind. I think the second episode which I got involved with and was never covered in the media at all, but was quite an important milestone in this whole debate that round about the year 2000, um, Gordon Brown commissioned a report from a man called Cruikshank, who was, I think, later chairman of the Stock Exchange, to look at the banks. And the particular issue that preoccupied him and us at the time was what were regarded as the excess profits of the banking system. And Cruikshank produced a report which the government then sat on and did nothing about because I think it didn't understand it or regarded it embarrassing. And Cruikshank made a key insight at the time, which was there's something very odd about institutions that made profits that couldn't be explained on grounds of their risk or 
their, uh, their pay performance, they made very, very high rates of return, but at the same time were protected by the taxpayer, because the taxpayer ultimately was a lender of last resort. And he concluded either that these banks should be made to compete like any other enterprises, like car companies or whatever, and if they went down, they went down, uh, and allowed to earn whatever profit they liked. Uh, alternatively, if they were going to continue to enjoy protection, uh, they should be regulated like utilities, like water companies or gas distributors. And some of us took up that argument. The government suppressed those conclusions. They were deeply uncomfortable. But nonetheless, somebody had fingered at an early stage what the underlying problem was, or part of the underlying problem. And that's an issue we now have to return to, because what should banks be? Some of us believe very strongly that we now need to return to very simple, old-fashioned banking, like utilities, closely regulated and separated from the very high-risk activities of the investment banks. And that's a debate for the future, but we could have drawn on that experience in the past. Thirdly, there was an episode or a, a, a process uh, which got underway five, six, seven years ago of very rapid lending by the mortgage banks in particular, uh, the demutualized society, feeding the housing bubble, building up a large amount of personal debt, and some of us got involved in that controversy at the time. And it was clear that at least at the UK level, and to some extent in the United States, that phenomenon lay at the heart of the the failure of financial instruments, because that bubble ultimately burst and produced bad debt. And I think one of the lessons we have now learned, and to some extent we have made progress, I think most of the people now concerned with policy now accept that there was a failure of regulation, that the capital held in banks and lending institutions should reflect the economic cycle. I think that's one big lesson that's learned from the past. Perhaps also, though this is more controversial, that in future, those institutions which deal with inflation, central banks, should take account of asset prices as well. And then the fourth and final controversy, and this is where I just bring my remarks to conclusion, center on the issue of nationalization, because I think that is the, one of the key issues where we now, the public debate now centers and is unresolved. Now, the view some of us took, best part of two years ago when the Northern Rock crisis came to a head, is that when the government does become involved in rescuing a major financial institution, regardless of whether it was right or wrong to rescue it, uh, it's absolutely wrong that we should have a position where the profits are being privatized and the losses are being socialized, and that the banks should be brought into effective public ownership and control. And that indeed happened in the case of that institution. We're now dealing, of course, with much bigger banks than Northern Rock. We're dealing with the Royal Bank of Scotland, which in balance sheet terms is the largest bank in the world. It has a balance sheet much bigger than the British economy. So the concept of nationalization is an altogether more, uh, more difficult one to grasp. But it is one that we are now going to have to face because we've got almost nationalization of the banks, but with the government very reluctant to accept that step. And a very strange cast of characters is now coming forward to acknowledge that this is what has to be done. Uh, among them, Mr. Alan Greenspan, which you just had mentioned. The Republican defeated candidate in the presidential election, John McCain, is now going around advocating the nationalization of the leading American banks on the grounds that I've just advanced, that the government cannot be in a position of socializing all the risk and leaving all the profits to 
the private individuals, many of whom led the banks into its disaster. There is another reason for doing it, and I think this is the central issue which we now face in the UK, that the government has to give strategic direction. Uh, we're at an on pass where the banks are not lending, or they are lending but not on sufficient volumes. There are large numbers of sound companies which have liquidity rather than solvency problems, which cannot get capital, and the government is going to have to oversee and direct that process. Somebody is going to have to step forward and isolate the bad, bank, the bad debts and the good debts, and it's very difficult to see how in practical terms this can be done outside of a nationalized banking system. Poisonous issues like bonuses have to be dealt with, and as we've seen, there is a willingness to grasp that within the almost nationalized institutions like RBS, but not elsewhere. We have a position where the leading banks are engaged in massive tax avoidance. And again, this should be dealt with across the board. It's rather easier to do it within a publicly owned institution. We have to separate out the utility aspects of high street banking from the high risk investment banking activities. And again, this can happen within a publicly owned framework. It can't happen elsewhere. I do realize the dangers. It could become politicized, it could become bureaucratic. The difficulty being having nationalized banks in an international world. Uh, but the practical necessities, I think, point in that particular direction, and that's the main controversy, I think, that we, we now have to deal with. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to move straight on to um, Evan. Uh, why didn't you see it coming? Good question. I mean, firstly, let me say that actually, if anybody can say they did see it coming, it's uh, Vince Cable, and the fact that he says he didn't see it coming or didn't understand what was coming, I think, is very much to his credit. Um, I think a lot of people will say the press. A lot of people in the press will say we did see it coming, warnings were given and we were there if only people had listened to us. Others will say the press didn't see it coming and deserved some blame. I want to take an incredibly sort of positively ambivalent attitude to this. I think the press did not see this coming. I'm totally with Lionel Barber. To say that the press had somehow warned the world what was coming, you know, it's in my view ridiculous. The press did not in any meaningful way warn the world of what was coming. That's the first point. But I think it's entirely forgivable that the press didn't warn the world. But I do think there are lessons to be learned. I mean, so as you can see, really, this is so, on the one hand, on the other hand, very BBC-ish. Um, I speak, incidentally, as the person who was 15 years as an economics correspondent and left in uh, April 2007. That's when it all went and wrong, isn't I it? I know. <laughs> um, you wait all that time for you know, an interesting story to come along, and then 1.3 trillion come along at once. Um, so let me go through my three points that the press did badly. I mean, I think the press, there is no room for the I told you so school among journalists. There are a handful of journalists who had been going on about how bad it was going to be and how disaster was going to come, and those people can hold their heads high. Jeff Randall, I think, I noticed, I, I had noticed and clocked that Jeff Randall was saying it's going to end in tears, so it's absolutely he's entitled to say he told you so. He had been telling us so since year 2000, which is an important, an important rider. But you know, he can say he told us so, and uh, uh, good for him. There were warnings; there are admirable ones. But if you go and do a press search, as I did this afternoon, for the key aspects of the interesting part of the story, which was enormous changes in the banking system, um, and what they meant for banking, and what vulnerabilities they left banking open to, you don't find an awful lot about it. Uh, I looked for the words banking crisis, for example, in the last, um, in the last, since August 9th, 2007, there have been 3,620 mentions of banking crisis in the, uh, the press on our database. In the previous five years, there had been 209. 
all of which related to Japan, or uh, not all of which, but I, I didn't read them all, but the ones I scattered through mostly related to other countries or jurisdictions where there appeared to be a banking crisis. The word securitization plus banking crisis had one mention in the newspapers in the five years prior to August 2007, and the word securitization plus bank had 369 mentions. These were not things the press spotted or talked about on a scale. What the press did spot, and what I know I spotted, was the potential for a house price crash. And I think it's absolutely fair to say that anyone who had predicated their decisions in 2005 on, on the idea that house prices could not fall, was stupid. That, that I think, is unambiguous. There was plenty of talk about house prices, and there was plenty of talk about debt. But the idea that the press got it, in my view, is disingenuous. They didn't get it. They didn't want it. Why, though, is that a forgivable offence? Well, the world is a complicated place. And I know that I spent quite a lot of five, six years as I was economics editor at the BBC, 2001 to 2007, eight, eight. Quite a lot of that time, I was trying to fathom out what was going on in the last phase of the crisis. We had some very interesting stuff happening. China, falling prices of manufactured goods, unprecedented things going on. We had a house price boom, which we were aware of. We had a very strong pound, and we were trying to work out, is this because something's changed in our economy, or is this because there's a bubble in our economy? Um, we had migrants coming in, which gave a lot of credence. We had millions of migrants. You know, it was really quite an interesting thing, what was going on in the economy. It gave an awful lot of credence to views that were nothing to do with bubbles. And we were trying to work it out. The world is complicated. It was actually quite understandable that we weren't thinking about you know, the banking crisis. We were thinking about all sorts of things. The second reason why it's forgivable and why this happened is that human beings are a very flawed species when it comes to making judgments about things when they're right up to their faces. We have vested interests. We have all sorts of behavioral traits that mean we don't see evidence in objective or impartial ways. Of course, we're human beings. We just, that is what we are. And that's, we're not immune um, to the sort of natural biases hopes, optimisms, all sorts of things, all sorts of baggage that human beings have. The third reason why it is um, understandable that we didn't get it is that the media tends to operate in a single dimension. It tends to be good news or bad news. It doesn't tend to be good news possibly, but there might be some risk. We just don't do it that way. It's sunny or it's raining, and we don't, for reasons that are quite understandable, we don't tend to give you anything in between. Why is that understandable? Well, it's because our readers, our consumers, our listeners are quite busy. They want to cut to the chase. The chase normally means missing out the fan in the fan chart that the, fame, the Bank of England famously yeah. publishes. Giving it, cutting to the chase means giving the one point in the distribution that is interesting, the mean or the median, and missing out the distribution of other possibilities around it. It's quite understandable, and that's what the media did. The fourth reason why we got it wrong, and were forgivable that we got it wrong, is that although warnings were made, warnings are often made about things. If you want to judge people for ignoring warnings, here's the empirical exercise you have to do. You not only have to see how many warnings were made that they didn't listen to and should have, you have to see how many warnings they didn't lis listen to and sh shouldn't have listened to, were right not to listen to, and how many warnings they listened to and were wrong to listen to, because that's the exercise that you need to perform to know whether people were stupid or not in ignoring warnings or overlooking warnings. Howard made a very similar point on the Today programme the other day. The FSA gets warnings, but it gets a lot of warnings, many of which are in green ink, I think, were his words. And of course, 
you have to take into account the, the, the ability to um, discriminate between the right warnings and the wrong warnings. The last reason why we didn't get it in the media and why we perhaps shouldn't get it, should it why, why you know, it's forgivable that we didn't get it, is that it's not the job of the media necessarily to somehow pioneer a view that nobody else is taking. If the economists, the accountants, the ratings agencies, the regulators, the central banks, the politicians, the government, the treasury, if everybody else is taking a particular view, it's not really the job of the media to bang a drum that is completely at odds with where the world is, or at least I think it would be very strange if that's what the dominant narrative in the media was. I don't think that is the job of the media. The job of the media is to be there reflecting all sorts of agendas and things. So in, for all those reasons, five reasons, I think the media's position was terrible but forgivable. Lessons should be learned. That's that's the conversation we should be having. And what are the lessons? And I'd really just draw two very simple lessons. One is that it would be wonderful if the press and the BBC and everybody could talk about possibilities much more and about the distribution of outcomes that are not those uh, that are likely, but which are nevertheless on the horizon. And I think I, as a listener or a viewer of what I was saying, would feel much better if I'd just been told, not that there's going to be an earthquake, but that there might be an earthquake. And that's the thing that I think the media has struggled with terribly, is that ability to get across the nuances, the grayness and that. So that's the first lesson, is how you do that. And the second is how you get dissent into the media. It's how you get not just the sort of wacky dissenting voice saying we're all doomed. Or, it's how in serious media you can you can just overcome the power of the single narrative that tends to drive that tends to drive coverage of an issue and you can have people taking seriously the the bit that is off that is left field so to speak or to put it another way finally it's it's how during the boom years you can get Vince Cable you know a little more airtime than he has now because we should have perhaps listened a little more back then Thank you. Um, um, <coughs> we're going to move straight on because I'm sure we all want to have time for questions and comments at the end. And so I'll move straight on to Alex Brummer, who's the city editor of the Daily Mail and has been for, well, almost a decade now, nine years. Yes, yep. Yep. And ten years um, before that at The Guardian is doing the same job. So I made the longest journey, I think, in financial journalism, or some people would say that. <laughs> The, um, I was one of those journalists um, who was, um, appeared before the Treasury Select Committee, and um, one of the um, MPs who were eating out of our hand by the end of the, the hearing, I have to say, I don't know quite why, but um, I think Vince Cable would probably understand that better than I do, um, um, said a, made a comment and said, I, I appear to have here, oh no, it wasn't, it was Simon Jenkins who said this, said, I appear to have here the only four journalists in the world who predicted what was going to happen. This is because we'd all been boasting about how we'd spotted things very early on and, and so on. Indeed, most of us have actually um, written at some point in time about elements of what was going on. And indeed, I don't know if Evan came across my securitization references when he did his search, but probably not because we probably weren't digitalized at that point in time. But I remember coming back um, from the United States in 2002, and I'd been exposed at a dinner party to a conversation about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two American mortgage intermediaries. And I thought to myself, well, 
who follows that model, this model of securitization, that we, which these two organizations have in the UK? And, um, and the only organization I could come up with in my own mind, because I'd heard them talk about it, was Northern Rock. Um, I hadn't realized, actually, that most of the banking sector was in the same position. But Northern Rock had more of it than anybody else. 70% of their balance sheet was conducted in this particular way. And so I did write about Northern Rock and wrote about its securitization model. Um, but it was on the city pages, which is page 86 of the paper. I didn't write about it up at the front of the paper. I didn't write a feature on page 8, which is our big opinion page section of the paper. Um, we were writing about other things. In fact, bank bonuses and the bonuses executives have been a, a, a subject of enduring um, interest for 20, or 20 years in the financial press. Um, the whole corporate governance movement um, came out of financial reporting of the utilities pay, the pay of the, ut the privatized utility bosses way back um, in, the, in, in, in the late 80s and early 90s. So there, is a be there has been a movement around bonuses and so on for quite a long time, um, and, the, and the financial press has been very good at that. Um, so there have been bits and pieces around, but the reality and the truth of the matter is that such coverage as there was of these issues and the, um, and the problems in the financial sector and the over-lending in the financial sector and so on was largely, apart from the warnings on the housing market, um, way back in the paper, not properly projected on the, in the front end of the paper where we have 10 million readers as opposed to the back end of the paper where there's probably about three readers. Um, but, um, so there was a great problem about exposure. On the housing issue, of course, um, there was overexposure. I mean, the number of times that the Daily Mail on its front page had warned about the crash of the housing market and became a, a, a standing national joke. In fact, Private Eye, I think, um, wrote it. Private Eye had a, a, a regular feature, you know, how housing prices are to crash feature every week um, from, our, from our pages. So there was a, a warning about the housing market because our readers seem to be obsessed with the housing market and we played to that obsession clearly in the paper quite a bit. And there were other little bit of shards of information which did get reported. I mean, there were reports from um, organizations like the Bank for International Settlements in, in Basel um, which continuously warned about the build-up of some of these exotic financial instruments and derivatives, which we didn't understand, CDSs, um, securitized assets, ASBs, all these things which have now become quite common parlance in the papers were all there in some of their reports. And, and you know, they were reported again diligently um, in some of the more remote sections of the paper, but never in a very prominent position where people could begin to pick them up and run with them very hard. And so there was a, a, a question of, of running against the tide, which most papers don't want to do, and I think Evan raised that point very well, that the dissenting voices don't actually get a lot of play in newspapers. Newspapers are a bit like um, following, following the hounds. Everyone seems to follow in the same direction most of the time, which is a, you know, is a common fault. We're in a kind of pack, pack mentality quite a lot of the time. Um, chasing each other's tails quite a lot of the time. So there, was a, there, there has been a kind of reporting gap which has been going on. Has it improved? How well are we doing now that the crisis is well underway? I mean, we were trying to work out today, and some people say it began in August um, 2007 when the credit markets froze over. Um, you could actually trace it back actually to this month in 2007 because it was in this month that um, um, HSBC, um, our biggest bank, first came clean and said, look, we've lost five, million pound, five billion pounds in subprime in the United States. Um, they were the first to come clean and say so. Um, and in fact, interestingly enough, they're the bank which has emerged 
most healthily from this whole crisis. So um, being honest and coming clean with your problems um, obviously helps. And they did get quite a lot of coverage at that time for doing that and coming forward first. Um, but um, we're two years into the crisis. Um, obviously, financial journalism has become incredibly fashionable once again. Um, hasn't been fashionable for a very long period of time, economic and financial journalism. Are we doing a great job? Well, we're doing an okay job, I think. But it's much easier, and it has been much easier for the papers to run endless stories about the bonuses and the greed of bank chiefs than to write about the more complicated issues, um, ones which Willem Boiter has been writing about for, for over a year, 18 months, on his website very well, like quantitative easing and the more complicated aspects of this crisis. And that's much harder to get across, and it's almost impossible to explain simply, particularly in a, in a, in a popular paper, and we use shorthand like printing money, which causes all sorts of offence around, um, around the place. Um, but we have to get around these problems in some way. And so the reporting is quite difficult. And um, I'm always astounded by how much assumption of knowledge that most, a lot of papers are still using. And I mean, I was referring, reading an, uh, an FT read, leader recently, which was actually full of acronyms, which only about three people in the world possibly could have understood, including most of their readers. Um, so you know, we, do, we are overcomplicated in the way that we do things. And um, we need to make things much more accessible than we do and need to get away from the easy populist issues and deal with some of the more complicated um, longer-term issues away about the way banking works. So um, I, wouldn't say, I think there has been an improvement. There's been a knowledge improvement, but it's not been that brilliant. I think the third thing I would say is that um, one of the reasons that um, the reporting has been a bit off, off the mark is that there's been an unfair competition that many of the reporters who covered this crisis and had been with this crisis had never lived through a banking crisis before. I'm fortunate. I'm slightly older. Um, I cut my teeth um, in the early 70s when um, we had our own local British banking crisis. It was international, but it was very, it was very, very scary at the time, um, including the afternoon I sat in my office and the phone rang, and it was the chairman of the then chief executive of NatWest, and said, Alex, I just rang to tell you that we're not going bankrupt, um, despite what you may read in the papers. And he gave me a reassuring statement, which we duly reproduced in the paper. And that was the time when um, you know, a number of banks, 25 banks, I think it was at the time, um, took, went to the Bank of England and quietly queued up outside the Bank of England and collected um, around about £1.7 billion, which in today's money, one of the economists here, I'm sure, could tell me what that would be in today's money, but was a lot of money at the time for one small, Brit one small economy off the northwest coast of Europe. So um, we're, um, there's, experience does count in this, in, in this area, and I think one of the problems is a lot of the financial journalists um, who grew up during the boom times have never experienced a bank collapse, and we've had a large number over the years. Um, they take a long time to resolve, around about 10 years, and that's another lesson that people have now beginning to learn. I think we're learning that today um, from some of the information we've got about Northern Rock, that the government has rolled out the timetable for correcting Northern Rock now to 2015 from 2010, and we're beginning to see the, the length of time it does take to correct a banking crisis. So there is a problem there, and the other um, unfair bit of competition is that during this period, and during the crisis itself, um, the press has found itself up against an incredibly powerful public relations machine, which is run by the banking system, which is run by the um, public affairs officers, um, agencies of one kind or another, extraordinarily well-paid professionals whose job it is to dissemble, lie, if you like, 
to the press to try and keep them at bay when, they have, when they're on the track of something investigative and to put you off the track. And sometimes you know, those tactics can work for quite a long period of time. And they also have a legal system which they can use, letters of complaint, PCC complaints. There's a whole array of weapons that they have to try and put you off the track. And I think that that has also been a, a bit of a problem for the, in this period. I think we need to improve the training of financial journalists, their experience levels, the quality of the pool of people in the business also needs to improve. I mean, they're very, very good people, excellent people on some of the papers. I mean, the FT has a wonderful pool of people, but not that many people in this country actually read the FT, unfortunately. So um, it's a bit wasted on the general population in many cases. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Um, well, the, uh, there were a couple of side swipes at the FT in that, that <laughs> nobody right. reads it, that it deals in acronyms no one understands. Well, uh, Gillian uh, is an acronym in herself. She's an expert in CDOs, ABSs, CDSs, and every other bit of toxic waste in the financial system. Um, <laughs> Gillian. Well, with an intro like that, I think that's social death. But um, um, I have indeed spent the last <clears throat> five years wading through alphabet soup. And I'm going to talk a bit about my experience in doing that um, to shed light on the question of why um, so few people saw it coming. And I speak not merely as a journalist, um, but also as a social anthropologist, because I, before I became a journalist, I actually did a PhD in social anthropology, and that social analysis informs very deeply the way I look at things in the media. About um, five years ago, I was um, acting head of the Lex column on the FT, and I was asked to do a quick study to look at how we were covering the world from the perspective of Lex. Lex is the financial and um, corporate analysis column on the back of the FT. So I sat down and said to a colleague, right, let's draw a quick sketch map of the financial system and see which bits we're covering, which bits we're not. And essentially, I was doing the same kind of thing I used to do when I was an anthropologist working out in Soviet Tajikistan and trying to draw a map of the village where I was working to see how the bits fitted together. So the first thing we discovered was actually it was very hard back then to get a clear, easy map of the financial system. Um, but secondly, when we tried to sketch one out, we realized that actually we were only covering a very small part of it um, within the FT and within the wider media in general. And so we put our thoughts together, and I banged out a series of memos that came to be known as the Iceberg Memos, where basically I argued that the FT, um, to a certain degree, and the wider financial press in particular, was just covering a tiny bit of the financial system that floated above the water, i.e. the equity market, the foreign exchange market to a degree, but ignoring the vast shadowy debt and derivatives market that was quietly expanding and driving a lot of the city revenues, but was almost entirely um, ignored and hidden. So I started agitating to try and go across and cover that credit world. And one thing led to another, and I ended up moving across from the glories of Lex to run the capital markets team. And at that time, many people in the FT thought I was completely mad. Um, in fact, there was a bit of a joke that I was basically on a mummy track because I was heavily pregnant at the time. Because most of the glory and status inside the FT back then and across the um, financial journalist world as a whole was attached to jobs with titles like economics editor or banking editor, um, or the Lex column was pretty high status. And the capital markets team, by contrast, 
sat in what was basically a bit of a cupboard around the back of the FT. Um, we were very under-resourced, and we were by and large on page 323, if we were lucky, um, not quite page 85, and according to Alex, read by about three people. <laughs> but um, I got a bit of beer in my bonnet and did a kind of quasi-anthropological tour of the CDO world, trying to bounce around and get to grips with a strange new language and went out to these conferences that bankers tend to have out in places like Nice. Never in Hull, always in Nice or Cannes. And discovered that I was, they were all shocked to see me because they'd never had a mainstream press person go down before. They only ever had the trade press who were more or less captured by the industry. But we got a team together and started trying to cover it. Um, and we started writing about what we saw and gradually over time became more and more alarmed. Um, not sufficiently alarmed in retrospect. I mean, I look back at what we wrote back then, and there's an awful lot we missed. But we did actually put out quite a lot of warnings about the scale of leverage that was in the system and the dangers. But as we did so, we encountered a lot of problems. Um, it was a pretty lonely job covering wading through alphabet soup back then. Um, there weren't really many other mainstream papers doing it. And there really wasn't um, that much interest initially within the FT. We had to fight quite hard. Um, to the credit of people like Lionel Barber, um, he really got it after about six or 12 months. But then we came up against the ferociously powerful CDPR machine. Um, there was a very limited pool of people um, four years ago who knew what a CDO of ABS was. And 99.9% .9 of them were working for banks and paid considerably more than certainly my team. Um, we also faced the problem that actually within the financial industry, most people didn't actually know what was going on as a whole. To imagine that there were a bunch of brilliant bankers sitting there, um, like some kind of doctor, um, some kind of Bond-like evil genius plotting what was going on and keeping track, is complete fiction. Most bankers were operating in such a fragmented, siloized world that it was very hard for them to see beyond their own little trading desk and add the pieces together and they certainly didn't have any incentive to rock the boat. Um, most regulators didn't have much incentive to rock the boat either, and it was even harder for them often to put the pieces together and work out what was actually happening on the ground. In addition to that, there was also this dominant um, sentiment that writing about CDOs and writing about all these other weird acronyms was dead boring. It was technical, it was geeky. To a certain extent that was true, but it was also a fiction that suited the banking industry very well. Having people believe that what they did was technical and geeky meant that people simply weren't asking too many questions about it. And it's not so much a question of anyone sitting there plotting to keep the journalists away, although certainly there was a PR machine which tried to keep a lot of that activity in shadows, but it was more an unconscious systemic um, pattern that developed. Um, again, I go back to anthropology. Um, there was a very pressing anthropologist called Pierre Bourdieu who pointed out um, a number of years ago that the way that elites maintain power is not simply by controlling the means of production, to be wonderfully Marxist, um, he was French, um, but also by controlling the rhetoric, controlling the debate, the dialogue, and controlling not merely what is said, but above all else, what is not said. It's a question that are not asked. And the fact is that five years ago, when we were wading through alphabet soup, the vast majority of politicians were delighted to see the economic boom and take the tax receipts from a thriving banking industry. They were delighted to see voters ride in the back of a house price boom. Very few hard questions about, were asked about why it happened, where this cheap money was coming from. 
Unfortunately, the journalist world, as Evan has pointed out, tends to be peopled by people who are human beings with all their flaws. We tend to mirror the um, flaws of society around us for better and for worse, both in the structure of how we organize ourselves, but also in the questions that we don't ask. So looking back, I'd say that it's clear that the state of the financial industry was a glaring area of social silence, to use an anthropological term. It's a track record that the media should not be proud of. Um, I look back at what we wrote, and I think we were probably amongst the first to talk about the dangers of complex products, and I certainly wish that we had said more, done more, spoken out more openly. Um, but I think the question going forward is not merely how does the media now try and play catch-up and shed light on what's happening in an intelligent and thoughtful way, but also what other areas of social silence is the media continuing to ignore, not just in finance, but elsewhere? Well, Gillian, both you and Alex have claimed three readers. Uh, Vince was clearly one. Uh, I fear I am another. So we're now going to hear from the third and last uh, of your three readers. I, I actually don't read the FT. I just blog, <laughs> for, I just blog for it. Um, well, the media didn't see it coming. I really think no one saw it coming. Some people identified little bits of it. Nobody saw the whole picture. As late as last August, if anybody had told me that out of 45, 50 border crossing systemically important banks, uh, six months later, maybe a handful would be solvent on its own strength, as opposed to uh, thanks to past, present, and anticipated future government support, I would have said, no, pull the other one in place, I believe. And uh, so I really think that uh, the full uh, shock and horror of the global financial system, all the key wholesale markets, and most of the border crossing uh, banks, and now also, of course, insurance companies lining up to join the party, uh, that all this you know, would be gone, that the financial system we used to know is no longer, nobody saw that coming. Um, I don't blame the media. They're not supposed to see things coming. Uh, prophets and maybe scientists are meant to see things coming. I personally think it's all Howard's fault. But, um, um, but, um, um, but um, we have to recognize the fact that the periodic bubbles, booms, and busts have never been predicted. Economists, social scientists, and other observers are lousy at forecasting, especially when it involves the future. <laughs> it's bad enough forecasting the past, the field known as history, uh, which has a lot of disagreement about it. Um, the media, uh, most of it, is, um, well, is entertainment. A small part of it is news. And a negligible <laughs> component of it it is the total number provided is analysis. Um, the written media, at best, can report and explain things as it happens or shortly after it happens. Of course, even then, the media don't do complexity because their readers don't. 
Um, radio and TV is entertainment, uh, maybe some reporting. Internet blogs and other, no, the, the new media uh, have some reporting, but mainly uh, highly partisan advocacy, uh, insults and personal abuse. Um, right? Uh, it's um, very little analysis. Um, we have to also recognize, I think a point has been made, that virtually everybody was captured in one way or another by the financial sector. From the regulators, to the media, to the academics. If they weren't captured in a directly venal way, they were captured, as I called it, cognitively. And they told such a good story. They called the sell side for, you know, <laughs> uh, collectively they really are the sell side. Uh, it was such a good story. Um, and who argues with somebody who brings home you know, 40, 50 million a year? They're going to say they got it wrong. And, you know, if you're that smart, how come you're not richer? And that, that kind of argument. So there was real, I think, ideological also and paradigm blindness. Um, nobody, I think, really f understood the size <laughs> and the complexity of the house of cards that was erected on the foundations of a relatively short period of stability. And the, the, stabil the great stability is not really a decade of stability because we had the tech crash in there and all that. So we really took six years at most, or less than that, of, of stability, um, of GDP growth, of inflation, very low non-real interest rate and risk spreads, and the world, the financial sector, and the world observing it, reporting on it, acted as if risk couldn't just be traded, but had disappeared down a black hole. It's an immense sort of example of collective delusion. So the short period of stability and a wave of financial engineering, which exposed to that be mainly uh, no, uh, for, well, exclusively really, uh, for regulatory avoidance and evasion and, and, and tax evasion, tax avoidance, rather than for, uh, for proper risk treating. There was, of course, a prevailing ideology of market triumphalism, which had started as early as Thatcher and Reagan revolution and the fall of the Soviet empire, uh, no, towards the end of the decade of the 80s. But it fed into this period of stability, which really made it seem not just like the end of politics, but the end of economics. Right? There was nothing to be decided. Steady growth was here. We know how to do it. Get the central bank to target inflation, light touch regulation, self-regulation, and the golden rule. And off you go. Um, people clearly were disinclined to stop dancing while the music was playing. It wasn't just Chuck Prince. We all were. We forgot the basic lesson that finance is inherently unstable. Um, the finance is trade in promises expressed in abstract purchasing power. Now, if Boeing or Airbus want to double their capacity, it takes them four years to put together a new assembly line. If a bank wants to increase the size of its balance sheet tenfold, it adds a zero to the relevant columns. Right? All you need is confidence, trust, and optimism. And when those are present in abundance, there is no limit to the growth of credit, to the asset booms, to the extent of leverage that you can sustain. And then the thing is in reverse, it goes even faster, as we see now. I mean, deleveraging, 
goes fast and even more, more, more destructive of true wealth than the upward uh, leveraging. We forgot that cross-border finance of all forms of finance is the most unstable. Uh, um, banks can only be, banks are inherently uh, institutions uh, representing accidents waiting to happen. Right? You borrow short, you lend long and illiquid, you're basically dead. Right? Unless you're supported by institutions with, with deep pockets. So any banking system to work and to do this uh, maturity and liquidity transformation needs a supervisor regulator, a central bank for lender of last resort and market maker of last resort function, and a fiscal authority to back up the central bank. You need these three. And of course, supervision regulation, central banking, and things fiscal are here in the national financial markets become global institutions run globally. Accident waiting to happen. Um, we knew about too big to fail. We underestimated the likelihood of failure, admittedly, but we did not know about too big to save. Huh? We knew about that in the context of developing countries and some emerging markets, where banking systems had keeled over because the sovereign was bankrupt even before the crisis started. But we never thought we would see uh, banking systems are too big to save in the overdeveloped world. Well, the first example we've seen was Iceland, and there are other ones potentially coming down the pike. Any country suffering from the incompatible um, quartet, right, a small country with a large international exposed banking sector, a currency that is not a global reserve currency, and limited fiscal capacity in relation to the potential exposure to foreign currency-dominated assets is an accident waiting to happen. Well, there go Denmark, there goes Switzerland, there potentially goes the UK. And uh, except for the currency, there goes Ireland. Uh, we never thought, we never saw it coming. So I doubt whether when all this is said and done, uh, we will have uh, acquired the instincts to predict the next crisis any better than we did the last one. Um, if we did, then um, uh, people would have seen 1929 coming and the 30s, and they didn't. They would have seen um, the ERM crisis coming, and they didn't. They would have seen this crisis coming. The world, is, is, from time to time, goes collectively mad. The media are part of it, but don't cause it. But they certainly have I'd never do anything to prevent it or mitigate it. Thank you. Well, thanks to the panel for some very stimulating contributions, but it's now over to you. Um, and so I'm going to take, um, I've got quite a few hands, so what I'll do is take three or four comments and then I'll sort of farm them out. Yeah, the woman down here first. Could give your name, that would be helpful. Thank you. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Lisa Reinisch. I study at City University. I do journalism. Um, I wanted to ask a panel um, about reports, for example, from Newsweek that said uh, the crisis might be especially grave and long-lasting in the UK and whether they agree with that or what their view is on what the UK will uh, experience, how long it will take. Thank you. Uh, yeah, the next um, man there with just the next row down, yeah, with a sort of fleece <laughs> type thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, my name's uh, Daniel Ben-Amin. I'm a specialist financial journalist. Uh, I just wanted to take up what Gillian said about things that we're still missing, which I think is a more interesting question than why did we miss what happened in the past. Uh, and just to give two examples very briefly, I think, first of all, there's an assumption that uh, this crisis was largely caused by greedy bankers uh, taking huge risks with huge amounts of leverage. And I think that's extremely one-sided. Because if you look at this alphabet soup of uh, financial instruments that Gillian described, their main aim is to help manage risk, to transfer risk and help manage risk. In essence, they're very simple. That's what they're about. So paradoxically, I would argue it wasn't huge risk-taking that was driving the crisis. In many respects, it was risk aversion. But the financial media on the whole doesn't seem to have appreciated that. Uh, the second point is that there's been hardly any discussion of the economy in this discussion. I mean, Willem mentioned very briefly uh, the end of economics. Uh, and I think that's also a problem, that we seem to assume that the financial problems, the problems in the financial markets, are autonomous. They're completely separate from the real economy. Whereas I would argue there is some kind of connection. We can debate the, what the character of the connection is, what form it will take. It's quite complex. But there is a connection, and it seems to me very largely financial journalists are forgetting that as well. Thanks. Uh, one in the front row here. Quickly, so there's a microphone coming out. There it is. Peter York from The Independent. I agree with Gillian Tett that it is cultural. It is about the agenda and people who set the agenda and the language. But where I disagree, I think it always has been. The idea that suddenly the whole core of financial journalists became craven creatures, I think they have been for quite a long time. I remember when I first started reading broadsheet financial pages, what stuck out hugely was somebody like William Keegan, who actually had context and conscience, and nobody else had. It was quite clear that you got more context and conscience on the sports pages, and I mean this absolutely, than you did on the financial pages, and that was irrespective of the notional direction and agenda of the newspaper. Once you entered that sacred financial frame, all the other considerations were left out. And that was because, particularly after Big Bang, the journalists wanted to keep up with the city big boys. They didn't want to look gauche or lefty or wussy. And they didn't want to do big picture stuff because that was boring and made them sound like an ivory tower person like Peter Jay. So they avoided all that stuff. And they did, and of course, enormous persuasion pressure. And I think in line with Evan's analysis of what, of mentions of key words, it would also be fascinating to go back on profiles of people like Fred the Shred, or Adam Applegarth, or even little Andy Hornby, and see the terms in which they were described, their clarity of mind, fixity of purpose, their, the fact that, you know, we are where we are, do you know, um, all that kind of thing would have been read in those profiles as very, very strong positives of powerful, admirable people. All the things that count against them now were used in profiles. It was the language, it was the agenda, it was the culture of those bits of newspapers. It didn't matter which newspaper it was. Thanks. We'll take one more, the chap in the middle. Actually, those two, take the two of you and then we'll get some panel back in. Uh, 
Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Joe Abood. Um, I was struck by a story in the press uh, a few weeks ago talking about how the Canadian uh, banking system has uh, withstood the crisis very, very well, and all the Canadian banks actually in very good shape. And that was driven predominantly by uh, more prudential regulation that was applied in Canada. And what strikes me is that regulation and effective regulation seems to be at the heart of the problem that we've got here. And, and those who were around in the 70s uh, banking crisis will kind of have, have kind of strong views on, on this. And why, why is the focus on the media rather than how could the regulators, and especially the regulators in the United States, in the biggest economy on earth, uh, who kind of allowed so much liquidity to be pumped into the system, it was almost inevitable that the, the grief that, uh, that we've all seen was, was going to come to pass. Thank you. Well, the reason for the focus on the media tonight is because that's what this event is about. But, um, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I'm ashamed that the focus is on the media, having heard our media speakers. Uh, I come from a journalistic tradition. My name's Harrison, Fred Harrison, by the way, uh, when newspapers were, really were located in Fleet Street. And I remember Harold Evans and Sam Campbell, and they were editors who knew how to campaign in the public interest. And I believe that we need to bring back editors like that so that we get... Uh, kind of stories that really do need to be exposed. Uh, my question relates to not so much the way you framed it for this evening as slightly different because there were actually two people who knew right at the start that this was going to happen. One was Gordon Brown himself. From 1997, he kept repeating for the public consumption, if there's a housing boom, there will be a bust because that's always how it has been. The media didn't pick him up on it, but we're not looking at the political uh, uh, fraternity tonight. It's the journalists. So my question to my colleagues is this. What if in 1997 uh, warnings were issued that the housing market would peak in 2007 and result in a depression? What if those letters of warning went to uh, Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, my uh, former colleague at the Mirror Group, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair, what if those warnings were actually issued because you could actually forecast what was going to happen, despite the fact that economists say you can't? What if in 2005 the media were actually reporting uh, the results of a book that warned that there would be a depression? What if Sam, Ca uh, Sam Britton in the FT actually examined the theory and said, yes, this warning is plausible? What if The Guardian carried an article saying, 2007 housing peak followed by a bust? Depression. What if Money Week and the other investment journals were carrying those warnings? The question then becomes not why did nobody tell us, but why didn't the media actually get onto the story that they had ample warnings about in order to warn the public that they were walking into what we're now seeing? Thank, Thank you. you. Um, uh, let me try and farm those a little bit because I think if you have five questions times five answers. That doesn't work terribly well. We want to get more people in. Maybe I could ask Vince to begin with the question about uh, whether things are going to be particularly bad in the UK. Uh, yes, I mean the, argue, I mean, the answer to that question is partly dealt with by Willem when he talked about um, institutions that are too big to save. I mean, the, the, the basic fact of the problem is that three of the biggest banks in the world in balance sheet terms are British and the responsibility of the British authorities. One of them, HSBC, 
seems to be in reasonably good shape and is not coming to the government. One of them is now virtually nationalised, which is um, RBS NatWest, and we've taken on board all its, its balance sheet, which is bigger than the British economy. The third, Barclays, um, ugly rumours swirl around that bank, but it seems so far okay. Um, and as the bad debts and losses roll through these banks and wind up with the British taxpayer, there is potentially an enormous damage to us as a, as a country through, through the public sector, and that's why it is potentially very dangerous for the UK. Uh, perhaps just that there were two other questions which had a political dimension, so let me just deal briefly with them. Uh, the first was in relation to these craven creatures and the seductive role that the, the city PR machines operated. I, I was on the receiving end of quite a lot of this because I started criticising the lending practices of the banks 2002-2003, and I was indeed given a whole page in the Daily Express on one occasion to launch at them and was invited in for friendly lunches, to put me right, uh, by, amongst others, uh, James Crosby and the board of the, of the NatWest, as it then was. Um, and they were, the, 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 what was important about it, I think, was the arguments they used. It wasn't um, self-justification, and it wasn't sort of intellectual. It was an appeal to, the, to, to, to me, as a patriot, to rally around the city. The city is what is driving the British economy. You know, it's, you know, never mind the fact that we're doing well out of it. The British economic interest rests on the city of London. It's enormous entrepreneurial talents, the vast wealth it's creating. And here you are sniping at us. This is not good for the country. And so it was the ability of this industry to wrap itself up in the Union Jack that was a very, very powerful persuasive force. And the final point, which is political, you, you specifically mentioned Gordon Brown and his arguments. And I've debated these issues with him publicly and privately for you know, five years or more, and, and had of exchanges with him in the House of Commons going back to 2003 about the housing bubble. And it's very clear that until very, very recently, I mean, I mean weeks rather than months, he just does not accept that there was such a thing as a housing bubble. And the whole purpose of the Kate Barker report, which some of you remember, was to try to explain the rising house prices in real terms. You know, it was about expanding real demand and deficiencies in supply caused by NIMBYs in local councils. The idea that there could be a speculative bubble was something he would not accept and didn't accept and still doesn't accept, I think. Thank you. Um, <coughs> can I ask you to pick up Peter York's point about the cultural context of journalism and also linked to that his point about the propensity of journalists actually to over-glamorise and puff city heroes, which is something you surely recognise. Indeed. I mean, I don't have a huge amount to say on it. I think it's, I think it's true and I... Uh, couldn't agree more with the point that you know what the coverage consisted of was not new. You know the journalists go out there, they they have their beat. They're going to find people who, within their beat, look good, and those who are not looking good, and they'll write puff pieces about them. I mean, I think it's the job of the journalists to withstand the pressure of the public relations industry. I mean, and, and a, uh, I mean pressure, of course, is put to bear on those who are credible. But I think the job of credible journalists is to stand up to it. But no, I don't think there's anything I don't think there's anything new about it. I think that is that is the way journalists work and they I mean I don't I, I don't you know, uh, I think it would be surprising if it wasn't like that. I think it would be surprising if it wasn't like that. And it would perhaps be 
asking too much of journalists to expect them not to be a little like that. I do just want to pick up that very last point, which, um, I mean, if, if warnings were made, what would have been made of them? Well, it depends how credible the warnings were and how plausible they looked. And it would depend how many other warnings were being made about silly things or sensible things. And I can't stress enough that human beings are rightly ambitious to change and to hope and to think that they've invented some new, you know, new technology that's going to mean we abolish boom and bust. And it would be, I mean, of course we should have listened to the warnings more. And of course we should have entertained the possibility that we were wrong more. But uh, the idea that we should somehow we should never entertain the idea that the banking system has improved or discovered something new, or that we shouldn't entertain the idea that you know, lending to poor people is actually a good thing, which is really how it felt for quite a few years, that actually we've really done something that's genuinely different and new. We've taken credit to people who previously haven't had it. And this is something that seemed like a really good idea at the time. And I think it would be a pity if we sort of allowed ourselves, amid the gloom of all of this, to say we should never dare to hope that thing, you know, every warning should be kind of stamped on every innovation and everything that seems good. Of course, at the same time, we should be entertaining the possibility that the innovations that we've come up with, <laughs> that the things that we're doing might have very bad outcomes. So it's more about, it's not, a, I mean, it's more about, it's more about entertaining a bigger range of possibilities, in my view, than it is about somehow letting the doom-mongers affect uh, or shape everything we write. Uh, Alex, you tried pretty hard to warn about the housing crisis. Well, we, the paper did. We did indeed, and um, as I said before, we carried many warnings all over the paper on our, on our main opinion pages, on our front page, and on the city pages about the housing market. I'm reminded of your, the organisation for which you once worked. Um, when I went to one of the Bank of England's inflation report press conferences, and I actually asked Mervyn King what he if he felt, felt we were in the middle of a housing bubble. And he replied, that is not an co economic concept I recognize, the term bubble. So um, that was his perception of the situation at the time. And I remember um, that as if it was yesterday. And you know, this, was only, this was three years ago. And that was the way he spoke. So there were warnings out there. Just to pick up um, the earlier point about you know, lack of um, rather sugary um, profiles and, and that kind of thing, I think that's very, very unfair. I think if you went back through those profiles carefully, you'd find that journalists have always been sceptical and always remain sceptical. They may have um, written about you know, tall commanding Fred Goodwin, but every time Fred Goodwin made a deal, those deals were taken apart, questioned, asked about, and often criticized in very, very robust terms, particularly by city editors, all the city editors across all the papers. Nobody ever took anything at face value. Andy Hornby, chief executive of HBOS, he never got a good press, not from any paper at all. He was regarded, um, the, the phrase boy wonder attached to him because that was, that was our, our code word for saying we didn't believe a word of it. And we were very sceptical about the way the bank was run. So I think that's a very unfair criticism of the financial press and I'd like you to remove that remark, if you would, from the record. Gillian, uh, what about the point that um, it was risk aversion? that was the problem? Um, well, I completely agree with you, and so much so that, in fact, I have a 300-page book on the topic coming out in about six weeks' time, <laughs> which <laughs> doesn't sound like bedside reading, but it's actually a story of tremendous tragedy because, basically, this crunch is really a tale about seemingly good ideas that went terribly, terribly badly wrong. 
Um, what I'd like to briefly address, though, is the broader issue of cultural context, which is that um, about uh, back in the early 2007, I was yanked into the office of a senior banker in the city. Um, and I used to be yanked into the offices quite a bit back then, probably a bit like Vince Cable, um, who said to me, why does the FT keep writing that structured credit is so murky and opaque? I used to massively overuse the word murky at the time. He said, it's not murky or opaque at all. You can find everything you need to on a Bloomberg machine. So I said, well, what about that 99.9% .9 of the population that doesn't have a Bloomberg machine? <laughs> and there was literally a 10-second pause. And he clearly hadn't actually thought about that 99.9% .9 of the population, which is very revealing because I think, in fact, the biggest cultural problem we faced, um, aside from journalists being bought off and... Um, or not so much bought off, but facing huge cultural pressures from the city PR machine, is really an issue of siloization. It's a horrible word, but fragmentation, a lack of holistic thinking. As finance has become increasingly complex over the last decade or two, functions inside it have become increasingly specialized, and it's become increasingly hard for any one individual to grasp both the technical details of specific sectors and the overall picture. That fragmentation has been echoed in the public sector, where it's become fashionable to think about different departments, different silos. I mean, Howard may disagree, but there has been a great problem of fragmentation, a lack of holistic thinking. There's also been a growing assumption that somehow finance was a specialist activity, which could be ring-fenced from the rest of the real economy. The workings of the CDO machine didn't really affect the kind of things that Mervyn King was looking at. I would agree with the earlier questioner that um, there was a great temptation to separate it out. And I think that's fed back into the journalist world because we've also been plagued by our own silos, both internally in terms of how we organize newspapers and um, other forms of media, but also in terms of how we think. And I think the lack of joined up thinking, the lack of context, the lack of history has cost us very dearly. The Bloomberg illustration is very important because it really was as much about a mental village as much as anything else, a community of people who identified with each other, who communicated with each other through an email system, and whose concept of history was really limited to the data sets on a Bloomberg machine, which was usually about 10 years. Um, I happen, although I haven't got Alex's experience, to have seen a banking crisis before because I lived in Japan in the late 1990s, but the vast majority of people who have been covering it or practicing the credit boom or a participant of it haven't. And I think above all else, there's a need for holistic, joined up thinking and context, which is needed now. Uh, thanks. Dylan, this point about uh, ignoring the linkages between the real economy and finance, are you guilty? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Would you like to expand on this? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I'll, I'll twist it around slightly and uh, make the point I really wanted to make. <laughs> <laughs> which is about sort of where the regulators were, which is one of the questions. Uh, and, um, well, the regulators in most of the world were in microprudential land. Right, look at individual institutions, not doing that very well either, but um, not having the task and the joined upness of looking at the aggregate implications of whatever they were surveying or failing to survey at the level of individual institutions. 
even at the individual institution level, I think there's a real lesson for regulators that is not enough to predict or even to warn. They have to act, and they didn't. I mean, when the FSA tries to absolve itself and the Bank of England for the matter by saying, but look at our 2006 financial stability report or the God knows what report, they said it was all going to end at these, it was dangerous, house prices were growing you know, out of the pan, and um, uh, leverage was um, becoming uh, insanely um, uh, dangerous. Well, why were they doing something about it? If they, they either had the instruments or didn't use them, or if they didn't have the instruments, and were as worried as they were, they should have asked for instruments, publicly if necessary. So uh, I really think there is, uh, uh, it is not enough to warn when you're a regulator. As a journalist, that's all you can do. So, okay, <laughs> but as regulators, you actually have to act. So that's a, that's a real problem. And then the, the problem that regulators you know, don't add uh, and don't aggregate whatever they may observe at the micro level into macroprudential implications, that's a, that's a systemic uh, issue. It, it, it uh, happened with derivatives, for instance. Another point that was made here, derivatives, as we know, are not, strictly speaking, uh, mechanisms for trading and shifting risk. Derivatives, in the first instance, add risk, right? They are lotteries whose payoffs depend on prices of other assets and things like that, right? So, uh, in principle, you add risk. However, given the risk that's really out there, the fundamental risk, adding some artificial risk, organizing some lotteries, can permit people to end up with better allocations. Can, not will. Right? Every hedge, you know, every derivative can be used to cover your risk, to hedge it, or to uncover it, to take a wide open position. And what we had, of course, and what the regulators missed, is that instead of concentrating the risk uh, among those both willing and able to bear it, they concentrated this among those willing to bear it but not quite so able. Now AIG come to mind. So um, there really was a, 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 both a gigantic failure of information and uh, joined up thinking, and even before that, a failure to act on what they knew. Because they, given what they were saying in public, the regulators ought to have acted or clamoured for more instruments. Let's have uh, <coughs> one or two more. What, from the uh, guy in the middle, um, second row. Uh, taking Gillian uh, Tett's point about uh, the fact that only the tip of the iceberg, a relative small part of the iceberg, was covered, and Professor Boyter's point about uh, the relative lack of analysis in the past, where do we stand now in what is an incredibly fast-moving story, highly complex, a global, what, I mean, I presume that financial journalism, relatively understaffed as it is, the point that came across, is under extreme pressure. And though you may have the same space to fill and the same minutes to fill, you presumably have got even more coming in and inundated with stuff, and you have to be highly selective. And that's the first point. And the second brief point is this, is the potential adverse aspect of perhaps the less responsible part of the print media, the tabloid press, particularly in view of the uh, issue of rising protectionism and financial mercantilism and so on, and the potential impact of that on uh, policymakers. Thanks. Uh, next row behind, yeah, chap the purple shirt, yeah. Uh, I, I realize I'm in the lion's den here, but uh, speaking as a kind of economist in the city, 
I'd like to think, I think that part of the problem was your reporting of the actual crisis. Let me be give one very specific example. Robert Peston said a certain bank needed money. Now, when that happened, its equity price fell, and no one would lend to it, and no, it couldn't borrow on the wholesale markets, so it generally needed money. But, but he, when he was defending his reporting, he said, before he actually, uh, in, in the morning, uh, he said this bank, he described it as this extra cash would be useful. Now, the, the, the semantics between useful and need are very different, and it's something that I don't, I don't think the Treasury Select Committee, are, the level of analysis that they operate at is sophisticated enough to kind of pick, pick on that, and that's why the, the journalists are free. So I think the, the reporting of the crisis was actually part of the cause of the crisis. Thank you. Uh, blaming that on there. the crisis. I well, mean, you're blaming the distinction between need and useful on the crisis in some meaningful. It might have had one very short-lived effect on one particular bank's uh, problem, if you if, if, if you believe it. But it would be odd, wouldn't it, if the client base for the journalism were putting that much attention to each particular word? I mean, I think that's. I, I, I think it's it's implausible to think that caused a crisis. Personally. Woman in the next row, in the middle. Yeah, with a hand up, yellow shirt. Or is it yellow? I don't know. Ish. Hello. Um, morning, Pollard. Solicitor at the LSE. Um, I had two points that were sort of both related. Um, the first is, if we're saying sort of, you know, in the boom times, no one was reporting on the potential downside, I think now we're also in a situation which can be just as damaging, where in the down times, people are over-exaggerating the doom and gloom. And whilst I appreciate, you know, this is an awful banking crisis, you know, we have stories people reporting on job losses where it's just a standard cut that banks make potentially every year. Um, so I think that's one point we should discuss if we're looking to sort of rectify mistakes of the past. The second related to that is I think the huge role that um, financial media and any media actually plays in consumer confidence and therefore in the sort of play out of the economy. So just as in the boom times, you know, all these good stories of record profits in the city, great housing prices were fueling demand and fueling um, consumer confidence and growth. So in the bad times, you know, if, if we sort of focus on all this doom and gloom too much, we're in risk of sort of making consumers under-consume, um, not buy the things they would have bought and they could afford to buy, and therefore sort of telling this recession into something much worse. Thanks. Put, put that beh behind you to the guy with his hand up there with a the yellow collar. Uh, thank you very much. Um, the panel has talked quite a lot about the issues surrounding um, uh, surrounding prediction of the beginning of the crisis. I'm interested in what you think about uh, predictions which are slowly emerging about the end of the crisis. This morning, uh, the United States Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid uh, said, and I'm just about quoting here, that we are very close to the stabilization of the banking system. I'm interested in what do you think of that? Whether you think he's right? And whether you think it's a valuable thing for him to be saying at this point? Thanks. Uh, take one more over there. Yeah, go with glasses. Hi, I'm John Zhu. I'm a financial journalist, though, with considerably less experience than the panel. Maybe that's because... Maybe, I think that may be a reason why I still think the standard and the quality of financial journalism in this country is still remarkably high. Um, in many countries, I would think, um, political, legal, or simply economic restrictions mean that their populations will be served a considerably worse product by their media. And if we have you know, got it so wrong, what chance do those people have? I wonder what the panel 
has to um, say about uh, the interaction between financial media and economic performance in other countries. Thanks. I'm going to take one last one. We're a woman with a blue top there. Hi. Um, I know the panel was talking mainly about um, journalism that was more focused on high journalistic standards when it comes to financial reporting. However, the reality is that most of the population gets their information, whether it be on politics or finance, from soft media news outlets. And I was wondering what the panel thought was the role of the soft media outlets in terms of public understanding and what sort of impact it's made. Thanks. Well, I'm going to have to ask the panel to be very quick because we are supposed to be winding up at 8 and there is something else coming in here. Um, the, um, that, that's a prediction. Uh, let me um, uh, ask Villain uh, very briefly, uh, Monique's question, are people, is the media now being too gloomy and actually contributing to deepening the crisis? Oh, no, no. I think they're far too optimistic. <laughs> you think things are bad. You just wait. <laughs> Uh, you heard it here. Um, Alex, <laughs> is financial journalism now under extreme pressure? Given everything you've got to report, you can't do it? Um, I think um, it is under extreme pressure. There are um, a limited number of reporters reporting on a huge field, but um, um, they're pretty competent. They've handled it pretty well and doing very well. Just pick up on two, two points made up, up on the balcony very quickly. The first one was, is British financial journalism any good? Well, having lived in the States for 10 years, when I was a Washington correspondent for The Guardian, I'd say that British financial journalism is infinitely better, for instance, than American financial journalism. Much more questioning, much more interesting, much more analytical, much more comment, much more opinionated, and, um, and much better informed. So, you know, that's a good contrast and something which we're well rewarded by. And it must be better than in some of the um, single-party states, which you perhaps were referring to as well. Um, and secondly... Um, are um, the soft media, is that where the people are getting their messages from? Probably they are getting it from the soft media, but I think the soft media picks up a lot of its themes from the, um, from the heavier media, from the broadsheet media, the middle market media, and so on. So I think a lot of the opinion forming is done in the press first and then picked up by the broadcast and other media, with the great exception of Mr. Peston, who's always first to the, to the job. <laughs> and the middle market media pick it up from the FT, of course. <laughs> Uh, Vince, can I ask you to pick up the question about the potential impact of uh, tabloid uh, advocacy of, effect of, of responses which effectively would lead to protectionist policy? Do you feel that that pressure emerging in Parliament now? Well, not, not traditional protectionism. Um, I mean, Britain has been actually remarkably good, and I you know, criticise Gordon Brown, but in one way it's been very good, is defending Britain as an open economy. You know, it's not a fashionable argument that has been very good, and I don't see any sign that the current traditional British free trading attitudes are in any sense under pressure. The problems are in specific areas, one of which is immigration, and you just need to look at the headlines of national papers day in and day out to be reminded that you know, foreigners working here or living here are, quote, a problem, and uh, that's how they're portrayed, and it's gradually percolating its way through into immigration policy that is becoming progressively more repressive and bureaucratic and affecting people's lives measurably. Um, the, 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 the tricky area is in the financial sector. I mean, I, when I heard the question, I asked myself whether I was being right in a phrase that I often use in the public debate as saying that the priority 
in government policy is to make sure that there is a fear of new lending to good British companies. And I think, well, should I say that? Um, these are global banks. Should they be lending to British companies rather than Russian oligarchs or their other customers? And I think it is justified because it's the British taxpayer which is underwriting them. They're not being rescued by the globe. And within, you know, that may be a rather feeble excuse, but I think that there are respects in which, as public representatives, we do have to speak up for the British public interest. Evan, uh, I think you're from a soft media outlet, I think. Sorry. Um, Hard as nails. <laughs> but, I mean, how, let me try to transpose that question a little bit, because in the Today programme, obviously, you know, you know, you're not writing pieces that uh, Gillian can get away with. How well do you think, um, well, there are only three readers, so they, you know, they, they've got used to that. Um, how, how well do you think the more demotic journalism, if you like, and the, you know, the BBC 10 o'clock news or whatever, is approaching this question now and is explaining what's going on? I think it will win a lot of awards. I mean, I think the 10 o'clock news in particular, I think, I think they're doing an extremely good job. I mean, there's always a danger that the fact that media tends to have a single narrative that tends to sweep through the complexity of the situation and the nuances is a flaw. I mean, it's definitely a flaw. It would be better in some sense if we didn't have that. Um, and that single narrative might, on occasion, have the incidental effect of slightly accentuating the upswing or you know, accentuating the downswing. It's not, on average, accentuating anything, or on, it's not, on average, causing booms. Um, but it might give the, you know, it might, if you like, slightly contribute to the mood or the, the momentum that a, that a cycle already has. But I actually, I think, the, the good thing about the narrative, and the good thing about there being a kind of a consciousness of this is the story, and now this is the story we're doing, is that once everyone knows this is the story that we're doing, resources are put into it, Brains are deployed on how you cover it. The story gets airspace. It gets you know it gets space to be told, and it's in a way it becomes quite hard to keep it off. And I um, I think you know the BBC does a, 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 and has done on this crisis, led by obviously by Robert. I think it's done an incredibly good job at exploring different dimensions. I slightly disagree with them. I think it actually does make quite a good effort to try and explain things as much as it can. It's obviously got to be pretty realistic about how much you can get across. But um, no, I think the media, I think that the soft media has been pretty hard on this and it has actually covered it, given it the space, given it the time. It has used words like securitization and subprime. It has attempted to take people through, I think in a very ambitious way, what you could probably reasonably expect the public to absorb. And I, I, think, the, I think that will be recognised. I think the coverage of the, of the crisis has been extremely good. Well, we'll give the last word to the FT, because no FT, no comment. My, um, uh, <coughs> my own, I will believe the crisis is over when uh, Gillian is posted to the FT Homes and Gardens section. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, do you believe Harry Reid is right that we are about to see the stabilisation? Um, I wouldn't dare say that with confidence right now. Um, I would just leave although you with one note for all four readers of the FT. Um, but, you know, two or three years ago, it was damn hard to get anyone interested outside page 223 of the FT in the question of how money moves around the world. Um, these days, people have realized with a vengeance 
that the way that money moves around the world is of critical importance, not just to the financial geeks or the four readers of the FT, but to society as a whole. We ought to all be asking hard questions most of the time about that. And if there is any silver lining to this horrific cloud that hangs over us, it's that at least this is a lesson that I don't think people are going to forget in a hurry. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to the panel. And thanks to you for some very good points and very good questions, and to Polis, which, uh, which this will not be the last event. Thank you.